You're listening to The Globalist Asia, first broadcast on the 1st of November 2013 on Monocle 24. The Globalist Asia is brought to you in association with GE. From Midori House in London on the 1st of November 2013. This is the Globalist Asia on Monocle 24 with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up on today's programme, the leader of the Pakistani Taliban is killed in a drone strike. We'll find out what this means for the region. Nawaz Sharif, the Prime Minister, was only in Washington a week ago where he met face to face with President Obama and condemned drone strikes. A week later, Hakim al the head of the Taliban, is killed by a drone strike. Also ahead, Australia's ambassador to Indonesia is hauled before the foreign ministry in Jakarta for letting the Americans use his embassy for spying. We'll unravel the diplomatic tangle later. Plus, in the final part of our series on the New York mayoral election, we review how the candidates Bill de Blasio and Joe Lota have done in their campaigns. The public sector union contracts are his great and big first challenge. All the candidates across the board making the case that it's not something that anybody should discuss in public. And I think they're right about that, except it leaves the public scratching their heads as to how they are going to make this work. All that, plus we find out what's setting the weekend agenda in China, and we check in with our woman in Washington. That's all coming up right here on The Globalist Asia, right here on Monocle 24. But first, the latest news from around the world with Jonathan Wheatley. Muslim Brotherhood supporters have staged protests around Egypt today in support of the deposed President Mohamed Morsi ahead of his scheduled trial on Monday. In Alexandria, seven people were wounded after residents clashed with his supporters before security forces intervened. Fighting also erupted in the capital, Cairo. The charges against Morsi relate to the deaths of about a dozen people in clashes outside the presidential palace back in December after he enraged his opponents with the decree expanding his powers. Morsi has been held in a secret location since July. Iran's foreign minister says his country does not seek a nuclear weapons program. Speaking at a two-day conference on science and world affairs in Istanbul, Mohammad Javad Zarif called on the West to accept a peaceful uranium enrichment program for Iran. China, France, Britain, Russia and the United States, the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council and Germany said back in February they want Iran to shut down its enrichment facilities. Mr Zarif said it was time to build trust between Iran and the P5 plus one nations. For Iran, even to have a perception in the world that we are seeking nuclear weapons is detrimental to our security. So it is in our interest, it should be our objective for the world to know that we have nothing to do with nuclear weapons. We don't seek them. We don't want them, we don't believe they have any use for us. But the second objective probably becomes more difficult for our Western friends to accept. That is, they should make it their own objective for Iran to have a peaceful enrichment program. A gunman has opened fire with an assault rifle in a terminal of Los Angeles International Airport today, killing a transportation security agent and injuring at least six other people before he was shot and captured. The incident prompted scenes of chaos at the airport, which halted departing flights and evacuated the terminal. Streets surrounding the airport were also shut down.
The Chief Minister of India's Goa state, Manohar Parikar, has promised an immediate crackdown on foreigners staying there illegally. His announcement follows attacks by a group of Nigerians on a police van carrying the body of a fellow national who was found stabbed to death on Wednesday night in Mapusa, about four miles from the coast. Mr Parikar says a murder charge will be investigated and a number of Nigerians have been detained on suspicion of attacking the police. Illegal protest was after committing a serious crime of attacking a police officer almost on the verge of trying to murder him. So it's not only blocking highway but attack on government property, attack on police officer. So we have booked, we have detained 53 of them. Iranian-American protesters gathered outside the White House on Friday to protest the visit of the Iraqi Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki and his meeting with the US President Barack Obama. Carrying posters and chanting anti-Maliki slogans, protesters urged Obama to question al-Maliki about the 1st of September massacre at Camp Ashraf, an Iranian dissident camp north of the Iraqi capital Baghdad. The attack killed 52 dissidents and seven camp residents remain unaccounted for. Friday's protests were also attended by a number of political figures including the former House Speaker Newt Gingrich and the former Representative Patrick Kennedy. And staying in the United States, 10 school children have had a lucky escape after the bus they were travelling in fell off a bridge into a creek in Kansas. None of the children were injured, but the driver was taken to hospital with suspected hypothermia. Well, Butler County's Sheriff Kelly Herzett says emergency workers are relieved the crash wasn't more serious. Deputies along with EMS and rescue responded did find a bus on its side, uh, approximately 10 children, and the bus driver were on top of the bus. Uh, they had gotten out through an emergency escape hatch. We're waiting for rescue to arrive to uh, get them off the bus. All the kids are, are well. They're, they're with their parents. Uh, the bus driver was taken to a uh, hospital in Wichita to be checked out, uh, but it's a good day. And that's the latest news on Monocle 24. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Let's get an update now on some of the key business headlines from around the world. Let's look at Reuters first. Uh, They're reporting that that 16-day US government shutdown uh, early last month dampened consumers' appetite for buying new cars. Seven of the top eight automakers reported monthly sales that missed expectations. Uh, Bloomberg have some market news. They're saying that the dollar has risen for a sixth day while treasuries have slumped as faster-than-forecast growth in manufacturing has fooled speculation that the Federal Reserve will start to taper its stimulus programme. And the FT here in London need with more bad news for Barclays. In the latest rate manipulation scandal to hit the bank, it suspended six traders as part of its internal inquiry into alleged rigging of the foreign exchange market, including its chief currency trader in London. The time in Kuala Lumpur is 4.07am, 3.07am in Bangkok, 20.07 here in London. You're with the Globalist Asia on Monocle 24. From London to New York to Tokyo to Shanghai to Buenos Aires to Hong Kong to Berlin to Tel Aviv to Toronto to Amsterdam to Zurich all around the world this is Monocle 24. 
The leader of the Pakistani Taliban, Hakimullah Mesud, has been killed in a drone strike. Mesud is thought to be behind the deaths of thousands of people. There was a bounty of $5 million on his head. But the timing isn't great for any peace process in the region. His death was announced on the same day that a Pakistani delegation heads to North Waziristan. Well, in a moment, we'll hear from Jonah Blank, senior political scientist at the Rand Corporation. But first, this is Imtiaz Tayyab, Al Jazeera's man in Islamabad. Kakimullah Massoud was effectively the leader of the Taliban. He effectively had loose control of more than 30 militant groups uh, across Pakistan tribal areas. Uh, these are groups responsible, frankly, for some of the most horrific violence uh, that we've seen across Pakistan in the past several years. But more than that, Hakimullah Massoud was widely respected uh, within uh, the militant community, if you want to call it that. Um, he was widely understood to be a very shrewd leader, somebody who commanded an awful lot of respect. So from a symbolic point of view, his death is enormous. But also from a tactical point of view, it really puts the, the Pakistani Taliban and those groups that he's affiliated with in a bit of a disarray. There's not a lot of people on the cards who can fill uh, the boots left behind by Massoud, again, a man who is very, very, very synonymous with the Taliban. He really is the face of this organization. Uh, and the fact that he's been killed in a drone strike in North Waziristan is quite stunning, to say the least, because it comes at a very complicated time for Pakistan. Nawaz Sharif, the prime minister, was only in Washington a week ago, where he met face-to-face with President Obama and condemned drone strikes. A week later, Hakimullah Massoud, the head of the Taliban, the group which has caused so much misery in this country, uh, caused so many deaths in this country, is killed by a drone strike. Now, it comes only a day after Mr. Sharif, while who's in London right now, said that the Taliban had agreed to start a dialogue with his government. So for the Pakistani government, this is extremely complicated time for them. Uh, of course, many people are already bracing themselves for the fallout of this killing of, uh, of Hakimullah Massoud, that uh, Pakistan is going to be awash in, in a series of revenge attacks. Any hope that this government had of dialogue with the group could very well be out the window as well. Uh, but the reality is, is that with this U.S. drone technology, this man who, again, has caused so much misery in this country has been killed. So it's a very complicated situation for the Pakistanis. On the one hand, they're no doubt cheering the death of this man who has caused so many problems in this country. But on the other hand, uh, they are very likely could suffer uh, from the brunt of an awful lot of anger from the groups that he's affiliated with. Imtiaz Tayyab there will joining me now to discuss uh, what Imtiaz has just reported. There is Jonah Blank, senior political scientist, scientist at the RAND Corporation, a global policy think tank based in Washington, D.C. A very warm welcome to the programme, Jonah. Um, Imtiaz just finished up by saying that there will be joy on the one hand in Pakistan and, and severe concerns on the other, but there must be unmitigated joy coming from Washington. Yes, I think there is. However, This really uh, highlights the degree of collaboration, semi-secret, between the U.S. and Pakistan on drone policy. Hakimullah Massoud was very much an enemy of the United States, but he was much more so an enemy of Pakistan. Uh, Therefore, where does this lead Nawaz Sharif? He was uh, in Washington last week uh, trying to get President Obama to stop the drone strikes. Um, He must really not wish the drone strikes to fully be scaled down given the the success of the latest one? 
Well, this is the consistent Pakistani position. Uh, it is publicly, we do not want to have any drone strikes at all whatsoever, full stop. Privately, we would very much like the drone strikes to continue so long as we are able to pick the targets. And Hakimullah Massoud was most definitely at the top of the target list for Pakistan. It, they are, and there was an interview with Hakimullah Massoud a couple of weeks ago in which he said that um, he was constantly underneath uh, patrols of drones and he was quite philosophical about it. He said, you know, we all have to die one day. Obviously, that day came within a fortnight. Um, where he controlled, however, was a very huge, was a very tribal area. Um, and he controlled it with a, with a very, very strong amount of power. I'll, I'll ask you about the amount of power that he exercised and what's going to happen next. But... Um, the Pakistani authorities must be braced for retaliation now. Yes, they, uh, they quite properly are, because there will be retaliation. But a thing to keep in mind is that this really uh, has never been a, uh, a relationship that was absent of bloodshed. Hakimullah Massoud and various other Pakistani Taliban leaders had launched a virtually ceaseless attack against the Pakistani state. Pakistani soldiers and Pakistani civilians were constantly being killed, and the current uh, opening of negotiations, in my view at least, was unlikely to change that dynamic. Um, what kind of uh, ruler or, or leader was Hakimullah Massoud? We've had nothing but descriptions of, of a man who one person described him as a genius in terms of tactics and control. I think that goes too far. He was no Che Guevara. Uh, there, in, there, in fact, was a lot of grumbling in jihadi circles that Hakimullah Massoud was not even any Batullah Massoud, the founder of the Pakistani Taliban, and uh, his kinsman, who, uh, who he succeeded in 2009. He was definitely a, a very important figure. That uh, This is certainly not to downplay the, uh, the significance of this action, but he was by no means the, uh, the glue that held this movement together. Uh, there will be another uh, successor who will take his place, and it's quite possible that the successor will be even, even more dangerous. Do we have any idea who this successor might be? Hakim Mullamus had replaced his previous leader, who again was killed by a drone strike. Right. We don't really know who will emerge. Uh, the Tariqa Taliban Pakistan, the TTP, is sort of like a hydra. It, it actually has more than one head, and every time one of its heads is chopped off, it may well grow several. So there's always a very large degree of uh, possibility that uh, the death of any one figure could, uh, could spark um, splinter groups, could spark uh, really a very unpredictable situation. Jonah Blank, Senior Political Scientist at the RAND Corporation. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. You're listening to The Globalist Asia here on Monocle 24 with me, Emma Nelson. Up next, US-led spying networks in Asia get Australia into trouble. The industrial internet has the power to improve the way we live and enjoy our lives by boosting productivity in almost everything from aviation to healthcare. Monocle spoke with GE's Vice President Bill Rue about the social effect of using such a dynamic innovation. What are the social benefits of this technology? Well, if you think about the industries we're talking about, aviation, it's 
Wouldn't you like to have a better travel experience? Think about power and water. If you don't have outages or you can predict and prevent outages, if you think just about oil and gas and the ability to produce more effectively, that's a great example. And healthcare is a great opportunity to utilize the technology to deliver healthcare more efficiently. I think this is really where the big change and the big opportunity in healthcare is productivity and operational improvement. GE, imagination at work. And you're back with the Globalist Asia here on Monocle 24 with me, Emma Nelson. Uh, the time is uh, 7.16am in Sydney, 5.16am in Tokyo here in London, 2016. Now, Australia's ambassador to Indonesia will have had to draw on every ounce of his diplomatic skills and experience on Friday. He was summoned to the Indonesian Foreign Ministry to explain reports that his embassy in Jakarta had been used for spying, and not by the Australians, but by the Americans. It's another revelation courtesy of the whistleblower Edward Snowden, this time finding its way out to the public eye via Der Spiegel. It's prompted anger not from not just Indonesia, which is understandable, but from a host of other nations who also appear to have been spied on in the same way. The Australian journalist Michael Turtle joins me in the studio to explore this further. Michael, what was going on in the Australian embassy in Jakarta? Well, as you say, um, these revelations have come out as part of the great swathe of Edward Snowden leaks. And it turns out that uh, um, Australian diplomats and presumably spies based in the Jakarta embassy in Indonesia have been using what they call short-range microwave-style hacking, which basically that's, means... That's microphones, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I was just sort of trying to throw a lot of technical buzzwords <laughs> in at the same time. But no, essentially it means that they're looking at um, telephones and things that can be picked up in, in a short-range kind of way. And what the what's happening here is that the... Embassy in Jakarta is working partly, I think, for the US authorities, but also for the Australian authorities, because the relationship between Australia and Indonesia is quite complex and obviously goes back many decades. And there's a lot at stake here for Australia to know what's happening in this country. Explain this context that is that adds add, that, that brings added complications. We're going back to you know the, the turn of the millennium for this, aren't we? Well, we are. I mean... What you have to realise, and this isn't actually talked about a lot, so I'm glad we're having a chance to do it now, but Australia and Indonesia are essentially the closest neighbours that each of them have. And these two countries, they they couldn't be further apart in terms of uh, politics, religion, social demographics, environment, all of these aspects, yet they have to work together both on a social, political and, and also economic level. And so... About, uh, let's say, 15 years or so ago, there were quite hostile relations between these two countries. Probably the best example is East Timor. Australia backed the intervention to help East Timor reach its independence, which, of course, riled Indonesia no end. But since then, what's happened is there's been a thawing of the relationship, um, particularly under the current Indonesian president, Cecilio Bangbang Yudhoyono. The real focus has been on trade and economics. Currently, the um, trade between the two countries is worth about $15 billion a year, which is uh, a large amount for both countries. And so they don't want this issue to be jeopardised by... Um, espionage or military issues. So although something like this has come to the fore, as we understand, mainly because of uh, US involvement, 
these two countries, Australia and Indonesia, don't want it to stand in the way of a lot of money um, going between the two countries. There is a, there is something that I've always wondered about it, with given Australia's recent pivot. Um, obviously, it is Australia's it is America's military friend. Um, but the Australians are also close, closely tied, as you say, in terms of trade with Indonesia, hugely linked in terms of China. I think they're trying to get Australian kids to learn Chinese in school. Yes. Also, they're trying to sort of get a slice of uh, India's pie. Um, who does in- who does Australia really want to be friends with? Or are they just trying to be mates with everybody? Uh, look, this is a very good question. I mean, traditionally, obviously, Australia had ties with the UK, being a former British colony. Then, over time, the ties started to form with the US, uh, being the world superpower at the time, and Australia being a, a fairly free Western country. There was a, a sort of natural bond between the two. But Increasingly, what's happened is that money, uh, commercialization has taken over and it's China that has the money, it's India that has the money and it's Indonesia that has the money. And quite nicely for Australia, it's Australia that has the minerals and it's Australia that has the resources that these three countries need to progress their economies. And so, yes, you're right. Um, Recently, uh, prior to the last federal election, the government Uh, decided to embark on what it calls the Asian Century Strategy, which meant that, uh, as you mentioned, Australian schoolchildren are now going to be encouraged to learn Asian languages as opposed to the traditional German or French. Um, Tony Abbott, the new Australian Prime Minister, within weeks of being elected, made his first international visit to Indonesia. With him, he took 20 business leaders. And this was obviously a very practical thing, but it was also a symbolic thing that he chose out of all the countries in the world to go to first, Indonesia, because he sees the strong trade ties with that country as a priority for Australia's future. Despite the fact that when he went, there was obviously this uh, a huge argument brewing about the uh, the immigration policy and the fact that uh, there, there, there was an intention for Tony Abbott to send back any boats that came from that, that came from Indonesia. But um, just looking at the way that Australia now moves with Indonesia in terms of diplomacy, we've seen very testy, frosty relations developed between the United States and Germany after the, the NSA revelations regarding Frau Merkel's um, mobile phone. What is worse for Australia, to be found to be spying for the Australians or to be found, found to be spying for the Americans? I mean, neither's good. It's a good question. I think uh, when this news broke in Australia that the uh, embassy in Jakarta was being used perhaps for Australian interests, I think the reaction was a, and this is a technical term here, duh, because that's what embassies... That's what we do. That's That's what what everybody does. That's what embassies exist for. But you're right. (laughs) The, um, the, the, The things that the USA has been accused of doing across the world have... Um, raise things to a new level and to be seen as a partner with them will probably cause more damage than doing things for their own national interest. So can you see any long-term damage here or is this going to be one of those uncomfortable moments in the room? Uh, I think, um, I think yes, a, a very brief uncomfortable moment and these happen every year or so. A couple of years ago it was the live export trade where Australia banned all cattle being sent to Indonesia because of issues um, with the way they were being treated. Uh, That caused problems, but we got over it. Asylum seekers, as you say, is something that comes up from time to time, but it hasn't stopped the trade. And I think that these espionage claims will be the same thing. No one wants to jeopardise the the real thing that's going on here. How stoic. Michael Turtle, thank you very much indeed (laughs) for coming on the show. You're listening to The Globalist Asia. London, New York, Tokyo. This is Monocle 24. 
London, New York, Tokyo. Tuva je Monaco 24. Londres, Nova York, Tokyo. London, New York, Tokyo. Dette er Monaco 24. Londonist, New Yorkist, Tokyost. Se on Monaco 24. London, New York, Tokyo, Monaco 24. London, New York, Tokyo. This is Monaco 24. Now, readers of The Straits Times were treated to an unusually unguarded few online pages today. Instead of a blog belonging to the reporter Irene Tham, a masked face appeared giving an unnamed correspondent 48 hours to make an apology to the citizens of Singapore for trying to mislead them with her hate. The unnamed face belongs to the Anonymous Movement, a group that's often loosely described as a hacking collective. All to tell me more, we're joined by Joanne Liao, who's former news anchor for Channel News Asia in Singapore. Welcome to the programme. Program, Joanne. Um, what what do we know about what the target of Anonymous was? Who is this woman that who who misled the people of Singapore with her hate? Well, um, she's a journalist at the Straits Times and a blogger for them, and I think that basically it sprung out of a greater sort of movement that Anonymous is targeting um, towards Singapore. They're taking real offence to new licensing regulations. Um, to online news sites in Singapore, um, which Irene was reporting on. And of course, they're not the first organization to criticize these regulations, which came into being in June of this year. Um, other Singaporean bloggers have criticized it. Um, international organizations like the Committee to Protect Journalists and even the American government have actually criticized these new regulations, which are basically um, a licensing scheme for online news sites that have a significant reach in the country. So they're asking for a $50,000 bond that has to be paid up. And the idea is that through these rules and these licenses, um, the government can exert some form of control over editorial and content online. It's not how sure this, this, uh, these regulations could work. I mean, is this an absolute likelihood? And, and what are the actions of uh, Anonymous going to do in terms of stopping it from happening? Well, they've actually threatened to mount cyber attacks. Um, it's unclear exactly where they will mount these cyber attacks and on which bits of the sort of online infrastructure that the Singapore government does have. Um, there's quite pretty much extensive, the Singapore government is online quite extensively, um, but it's still not sort of clear what that would happen. They've sort of threatened to do that if um, by a certain date I think their demands are not met and that the Singapore government stop regulating or take down the licensing um, sort of framework. It's, but at this point even, um, there are many internal and external cri- um, critics to this uh, licensing scheme, and it's not clear how it's actually working because the regulations were supposed to take effect in June of this year. They started with sort of 10 mainstream media websites, and in theory that could be extended to any website that was reporting um, Singapore news and that had more than 50,000 unique um, IP hits. Uh, Joanne, let's have a listen to uh, a video that has been posted by Anonymous uh, outlining their threats to the Singaporean government, what you've just described for us. Now allow us to explain the objective of our recent invasions. The secondary objective was to welcome you to the new rule where ignoring the issues of your citizens will go unignored by anonymous. We advise you to stop feigning ignorance and serve the people. Any form of arrogant and ignorant statement from a person of position towards the people will go unignored by anonymous. Have you forgotten who you work for? Traditionally the workers respect the boss. Let us stick to traditions. But the primary objective of our invasion was to protest the implementation of the Internet licensing framework by giving you a sneak peek of the state of your cyberspace if the ridiculous, communistic, 
oppressive and offensive framework gets implemented. Did I mention the previous hex was executed by a single anonymous member? That now is uh, the threat of anonymous by anonymous on the internet. I mean, it's it's quite threatening stuff, regardless of the you know how what the content is supposed to be saying. Um, what's been the reaction from the Singaporeans? Well, I think it's quite a mixed reaction. Um, speaking to some Singaporeans, I do know some are sort of intrigued and maybe even a little glad that this issue of internet freedom in Singapore is getting more even international attention. I mean, you have to understand that for many younger Singaporeans, myself included, we haven't had a sort of tradition or legacy of speaking up or rebelling against the government. So this is a very exciting time. I mean, since the sort of past decade, the internet has really provided a forum for a sort of anti-government discourse or dissident discourse. And this has been sort of unprecedented. And I think a lot of people are interested in protecting that freedom. But on the other hand, a lot of my ex-colleagues from the mainstream media and other ordinary Singaporeans are not sure that Anonymous speaks for all of them. I think in particular when they threaten individual journalists or they victimize people, there's a general sentiment that this kind of sort of vigilante justice is not sustainable or in fact desirable. In in my opinion, there are more complex problems regarding social justice, income inequality, workers' rights and freedom of speech that Singapore is facing at the moment. And I think many of us are sort of wary that an attention-grabbing gambit like Anonymous is just not going to work, but it's instead going to backfire. I think there are many other non-government groups in Singapore who are sort of legally working towards a fairer, more inclusive society and threats and intimidations towards a government that was still sort of democratically elected by some 60% of the population. Well, that may not help our cause. No, what we can expect some sort of retaliation or reaction from the authorities and also from the media too. Has anything has anything been done yet? What's expected? Well, the newspaper that was hacked, the Straits Times, just removed part of the website that was affected, and it's made a police report. And sort of knowing the long arm Singapore government, you can assume that it will probably turn its considerable resources to finding and punishing whoever it can. Um, it does have an IT security incident response team. And it's alerted all their government agencies um, just after the video was posted, in fact, to warn of possible hacks to bring down government websites. I mean, there are precedents for sort of legal enforcement of online um, offenses. People who in Singapore who have been accused of hate speech and racist remarks in what they thought were anonymous forums have been sort of brought to the courts um, of law there. And I mean, obviously, what anonymous threatens in this case is a great deal more sophisticated than that. But... So far, they haven't done anything major, aside from calling for all Singaporeans to protest on November 5th by wearing particular colours, and they haven't really given any details. Of course, they wouldn't. So, But at this point, it really remains to be seen what will happen. Joan Leo, many thanks for coming on the show. You're listening to The Globalist Asia. London. New York. Tokyo. This is Monocle. In the next half hour, our studio guest will be Charles Fu. He'll offer us his pick of the big cultural stories in Asia. Plus, Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco reflects on South American leaders of the fairer sex. All of these female South American leaders are leading largely progressive governments. In Brazil and Argentina, for example, gay marriage was approved during Cristina Kirchner and Dilma Rousseff's terms. It seems Latin American voters prefer to be governed by women. 
I'm sure they do. But first, with the time at uh, 31 minutes past the hour, Jonathan Wheatley has the latest. Thanks very much. Muslim Brotherhood supporters staged protests around Egypt today in support of the deposed President Mohamed Morsi ahead of his scheduled trial on Monday. In Alexandria, seven people were wounded after residents clashed with his supporters before security forces intervened. Fighting also erupted in the capital, Cairo. Iran's foreign minister says his country does not seek a nuclear weapons programme. Speaking at a two-day conference in Istanbul, Mohammad Javad Zarif called on the West to accept a peaceful uranium enrichment programme for Iran. A gunman has opened fire with an assault rifle in a terminal of Los Angeles International Airport today, killing a transportation security agent and injuring at least six other people before he was shot and captured. The incident prompted scenes of chaos at the airport. And staying there in Washington, Iranian-American protesters gathered outside the White House to protest the visit of the Iraqi Prime Minister Nouria Maliki in his meeting with US President Barack Obama, carrying posters and chanting anti-Maliki slogans. Protesters urged Obama to question him about the first to September massacre at Camp Ashraf, an Iranian distant camp north of the Iraqi capital, Baghdad. And that's latest news on Monocle 24. Thanks, Jonathan. Jonathan will be back at the top of the hour to uh, uh, bring us a full roundup of today's news. And then after that, Tom Edwards will be here to bring you the Atlantic Shift, where he'll be uh, playing you some great music and highlights from Monocle 24's Global Playlist. Uh, In the meantime, though, you're with me, Emma Nelson, bringing you today's Globalist Asia. Uh, Let's have a look at some headlines, shall we? The Sydney Morning Herald reports there's a resurgent Sydney property market is fueling the strongest conditions in Australian house sales for three years. Uh, The Nikkei in Japan has the story that Toshiba are to construct plants that process sludge from sewage treatment facilities into fuel. It will help municipalities cut waste management costs, it says. And the South China Morning Post says that the southern Chinese promises of Hu- province of Hunan has devised a set of so-called party-pooping austerity measures that will restrict the size and scale of weddings, funerals and other celebrations, as well as limiting gifts for its 66 million residents. That doesn't sound very much fun at all. You're listening to The Globalist Asia. The time is uh, 4.33am in Shanghai, 22.33 in Istanbul, uh, 17.33 in Washington DC, which is where we head now for a roundup of some of the big stories coming out of there. Amber Phillips is our woman on the ground. She joins us on the line. Welcome to the programme, Amber. Uh, what do you want to start off with? There's some details about the, uh, the Navy Yard gunman. Exactly. So a Senate committee held a hearing yesterday to find out how the gunman, Aaron Alexis, had a top-secret security clearance that allowed him to gain entry into the heavily fortified area and, of course, as we all know, killed 12 people in September. And what the committee found was really very appalling. Alexis had a checkered past with gun use in the law, but he was still granted a security clearance to work. And what they ended up finding out is the federal agency in charge of granting those security clearances didn't even know the details of his past and his arrest record, despite a lot of it being public. Um, Obviously, this has opened up a whole raft of problems. Um, What's been said about the general state of um, background checks and security clearance? Sure. So senators absolutely lambasted it yesterday. They called this a shocking revelation, the whole process of security clearances being offensive, really, in trying to uh, protect America, and that it's just kind of checking off boxes. And as you alluded to, this has a whole host of implications um, beyond this 
you know, mass murder in September, it also comes into play with the National Security Agency leaks by former contractor Edward Snowden, who had a security clearance and was working at the time that he provided this information about our spying capabilities. Uh, let's move on to food stamp cuts. This is um, this is something that begins right across America, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, today, millions of Americans, they sell their government welfare to buy food drop by about 5%, and that's about 21 fewer meals a month for a family of four. Uh, these cuts through the end of a 2009 stimulus that Congress put in place to help Americans during the recession. But what's really the story here is just how many Americans rely on welfare to eat. We're seeing that since 2007, there's been an 80% increase in food stamp use. That means 47 million Americans now use it. Uh, to put that in perspective, here in Washington, D.C., which has its struggles with poverty, one in four residents are on welfare. So a lot of media have talked to food pantries today saying, how are you dealing with the cuts? And uh, across the board, people have said, we, we need more money, not less. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to be what's going to happen moving forward as Congress debates a comprehensive food stamp package. Is there any indication why food, food stamps are the, are the first to go when it comes to the, the, the cutting of the stimulus? You know, that's a great question. We have had things cut in the past. Uh, payroll tax cuts was something cut a few months ago. Now we have food stamps. I don't know that I can answer why food stamps are being cut other than it's clearly a very politically sensitive topic. Republicans really don't like to increase welfare. Instead, they want to focus on other methods of getting people back to work. Uh, so what we know going forward is that Congress is sitting down to try and negotiate a comprehensive program. And Republicans, there's a big difference between what each party wants. They want to cut $40 billion U.S. billion in the program over the next decade. Well, Democrats want to cut $4 billion U.S. dollars. So I'm not sure how we're going to see, you know, how the food stamp program is going to play out moving forward in addition to the cuts that we had from the stimulus. Uh, let's move on. The Washington Monument has finally returned to normal. I didn't know there was anything wrong with it, so please enlighten me, Amber. <laughs> sure. You might remember we had a small earthquake on the East Coast in 2011. It wasn't anything big, but of course... Everyone made a big deal about it here in D.C. Um, but it did some damage to the iconic 550-foot-tall monument here in D.C. And I'm sorry, I don't know what the height is in meters. But you used to be able to I'll ride up you. to the Washington... Thank you. <laughs> ride up to the Washington Monument and get a panoramic view of D.C. Since this earthquake, it kind of cracked the top. Um, and it just really exacerbated a lot of weather-related damage. So for the past two years, it's been under repairs that cost $15 million and includes 500 tons of scaffolding all the way up to the top. And the scaffolding has kind of divided the city on whether it's beautiful or not. Uh, but either way, it's coming down finally. And by the next few months, everything should be back to normal for one of our iconic figures here in D.C. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Amber Phillips in Washington. And apparently the Washington Monument in metres is 169 metres. Thank you very much indeed for joining me, Amber. You're listening to The Globalist Asia with me, Emma Nelson. We're back with a final instalment in our week-long series on the New York mayoral ele election after this. The industrial internet provides a digital infrastructure that makes operations more automated, dynamic and innovative. We spoke with GE's Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer, Beth Comstock, about the latest local partners to get on board. 
You've enlisted the help of a few partners um, in, in this new endeavor. Uh, who are these partners and why did you choose them? Uh, today we announced a partnership with uh, Amazon Web Service. Uh, we're going to help bring more of our industries, railroads, airlines, help create industrial applications in the public cloud, which is what Amazon provides. We've been doing work with Accenture. They're very good at uh, integrating different offerings together, understanding business problems. We bring the technology. And we also announced a partnership recently with Pivotal, which is all about real-time computing of amazing amounts of data and the ability to take it in real-time and make a decision. GE, imagination at work. On Wednesday, the New York mayoral hopefuls Bill de Blasio and Joe Lota went head-to-head -head in the final debate of the campaign, providing starkly different visions of the future they set for America's largest city. As New Yorkers prepare to cast their ballots, we take a look back at an election campaign that was dominated by the Democratic candidate Bill de Blasio. A little earlier, Monocle's news editor Tom Edwards spoke to Bruce Berg, he's Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University, and Jani Zeno, who's Professor of Political Science at Iona College in New Rochelle. Tom began by asking whether the candidates did as well as expected in their campaigns. Bruce, I just wanted to start by asking you this. I mean, if we accept that the outcome of this race is, uh, well, more or less a foregone conclusion, always risky perhaps, but I think in this case we, we probably know what to expect. I guess people will look more at the, the campaigns and how the campaigns were run. What's your view in terms of how Bill de Blasio and Joseph Lota have actually done? Did they both do as well as would have been expected in terms of campaigning? I think as well as can be expected, I think would probably be the, the operative uh, phrase. Obviously, given that, the, that Bill de Blasio started out so far ahead in the polls, his goal was not to do anything uh, risky that would uh, lose him that, uh, that wide margin. And obviously for uh, Joseph Loda, the only thing he could do would be to go, go as negative as possible to try and dig into de Blasio's lead, which, uh, you know, he's only been mildly successful, if at all. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jeannie, if I can turn to you, what do you think about uh, Lota's campaign? I mean, you, I guess one could argue that it was something of a poison chalice. Do you think that uh, Republicans and everyone across the political spectrum will look at it and say, well, look, this guy really had no chance? Yeah, I think it's really an uphill battle that we kind of forget about because we've had, you know, two decades of Republican or independent rule. So we think, you know, it wouldn't be so hard. But if you think about it, Republicans that have gotten in have given voters a reason to vote for them, a reason to move over from the Democrat or the independent line to the Republican line. We're a city that's six to one Democratic, so that is an uphill battle by any stretch of the imagination. And I think the biggest problem with Lotus' campaign was that he never gave Democrats or independents a reason to look at him, a reason to vote for him, a reason to move over. And Bill de Blasio ran an excellent campaign. So it was really an uphill battle for him. He didn't have the funding. He didn't have the message. He's not a terrific candidate. There's nothing wrong with him personally. He's, he's, he's by all accounts, a very good person and a very good manager. But in terms of inspiring people to move from one party to the other, that takes a lot. And if you look back at our last two mayors, they had advantages. You know, Giuliani, had the advantage, if you can call it that, of the Staten Island issues that were going on at the time, and also his ability to run on crime and his ability to restore safety to the city. Bloomberg had, you know, was coming in post 9-11 and also had enormous economic advantage. You know, those are structural advantages that somebody like Joe Loda doesn't 
enjoy. And of course, the time is very different now. So I think it was a real uphill battle for him. And he was facing a really smart opponent. You know, Bill de Blasio saw four years ago that Bloomberg was absolutely vulnerable. Despite all his economic advantages and an incumbent, he came within a much smaller era, you know, margin of margin than anybody predicted against Bill Thompson. And, you know, Bill de Blasio absolutely picked up on that and ran with it through the primary to the surprise of some. And certainly in the general election, as Bruce mentioned, you know, really was strong throughout and, and never faltered. And, you know, I don't think it's any question that he's going to win by a large margin on Tuesday. So uh, let's assume that does indeed happen then. Uh, I just wanted to, to sort of throw this back to you, Bruce. What do you think the sort of honeymoon period, if you like, will be for de Blasio? Because he's had it pretty easy in the campaign stakes. Do you think that there will be a bit of a wake-up call for him when he's actually in office? It's not going to be maybe as plain sailing as his campaign has been. Campaign points has been a tax on uh, the super wealthy in the city in order to fund a pre-kindergarten program. In order to get this tax uh, passed, he's got to go to the state legislature and the governor because the city does not have control over income tax uh, increases. And the governor has stated that he's not enthusiastic about it. And I suspect that the state legislature, both the New York State Assembly and New York State Senate, is even less enthusiastic uh, than the governor. So I think uh, he's in some, in, certainly in this campaign uh, issue, he's going to hit a roadblock almost immediately. You know, on the other hand, he's you know for the first time in, in 20 years. We're going to have a left-leaning mayor along with a left-leaning city council. And although there are not a great many things that the city can do to alter the, uh, the, the concept of two New Yorks without the cooperation of the state government, it'll be interesting to see what Bill de Blasio and a, and a, and a very liberal city council can try and pull off uh, Jeannie, what do you make of it? That's an interesting point, isn't it? It's uh, a left-leaning mayor, left-leaning city officials kind of across the board. An interesting change of political dimensions, if you like, for the city. Um, how do you think de Blasio will measure up? We've obviously got sticking points like these uh, renegotiations of p- big public sector contracts. That's going to be awkward at best. I, here at Monaco, we're interested in things like urban planning. You know, there are questions about how adept he's going to be at tackling the kind of scale of those problems that will face him in office. What kind of a job do you think he's going to do? when he actually, you know, gets his, his feet under the desk. Yeah, you know, I absolutely think it's a great point. The public sector union contracts are his great and big first challenge. You know, they've been very quiet, all the candidates across the board, on how exactly they would deal with those, making the case that it's not something that anybody should discuss in public. And I think they're right about that, except it leaves the public scratching their heads as to how they are going to make this work. And this is an enormous challenge he's going to face right off the bat. And on the question of his honeymoon, I do think it is going to be truncated. And I think there is a benefit, as Bruce mentioned, to having a left-leaning city council, a left-leaning mayor, and certainly a Democratic uh, governor. I also think that creates some challenges, because with that comes great expectation. And we've seen, you know, in the race and in the campaign throughout, him kind of riling up expectations in regards to what he can possibly do. And as Bruce mentioned, the pre-K fold 
single-day pre-K funding is one of those things. But as he also mentioned, that's not something a mayor controls. Now, on that issue, I do think he will be able to pull something off, because I do think having a Democratic governor in that case is going to help him. He may be able to get Cuomo to throw him a bone, get some funding, and they'll both claim victory. Now, that said, I think on some of the other issues he has talked about and made promises on, it's going to be a little bit more challenging than perhaps people listening to the campaign took away from it. So, you know, there's always this problem, and I don't think there's a problem for de Blasio. I think it's a problem in American campaigns generally that we set up these campaigns to have candidates overpromise, and then they get into the office and the reality hits them squarely in the face. We've seen this with our current president. We see it with every president and almost every elected official. And it does create this kind of problem of high expectations, great expectations, and then an inability to deliver, which makes their ability to run in four years that much more challenging. And also, more importantly, their ability to be able to deliver on issues that obviously they care about. So, you know, yes, on the one hand, a left-leaning city council can help him on some issues, but it also creates enormous expectation on the part of Democrats in this city. And in the last debate, not the one last night, but the second debate, we saw a candidate in de Blasio trying to hedge his bets a little bit in recognition that he is, for all intents and purposes, mayor of this city starting Tuesday or whenever he's inaugurated. He's going to win on Tuesday, and he is not going to be able to, you know, fulfill all of the promises he's made immediately, if at all. And so we saw him hedging his bets on certain things, and I think we're going to see some more of that. And it's always a danger for people who run and, you know, make these kind of promises. We didn't see that from Loda. Of course, Loda was unable to do what you need to do to win a campaign. So, you know, it works on the one hand and doesn't work so much from a governing perspective. Jeannie Zeno there and uh, Bruce Berg talking to Monocle's Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Globalist Asia. The time is uh, 4.48am in Shanghai, 22.48 in Istanbul, 20.48 in Reykjavik and London too. Uh, Still to come, Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco reflects on South American leaders of the fairer sex. But now let's have a look at some of the big stories from Asia with a special guest live in the studio. Today I'm delighted to say that the design director and founder of Design Practice Office for Architectural Culture, Charles Fu, joins me in the studio. Welcome to the programme, Charles. Thank you. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the Tiananmen uh, car crash, which happened, what was on Monday, wasn't it? It, it, yeah. it, it disappeared from view, well, certainly from the Chinese media, and then popped up a couple of days ago. Yeah. And the allegations were that it was a Uyghur so-called terrorist attack. Um, tell us a little bit more from your point of view about, about how this week has unfolded for you. Well... Uh, uh... Um, well, actually, I don't think this is a coincidence or, or a single incident. I think it's one of a, a series of, uh, 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 well, um, uh, incidents or, or, or uh, <clears throat> what happens over the last uh, uh, quite a few years uh, in China between different groups of people. Um, uh, well, basically, it's, um, well, I think, uh, uh, based on the political structure in China, um, I think um, a local, you know, local people, including Han Chinese and uh, ethical people, uh, of course, uh, they would like to uh, 
voice out and uh, on, on the other hand uh, preserving trying to preserve what they you know how they live and, and their traditions and how do they manage to do that when um, it's Xinjiang where the uh, where the where the Uyghurs are, are based isn't it where no. they they have a they have a sort of a large minority there mm. uh, nonetheless we now have Chinese troops patrolling the streets it's very hard to establish a cultural identity when you have a man with a gun on your outside your front door exactly um, uh, you know, um, actually uh, before nineteen uh, sixties uh, Uyghurs uh, are were the majority in the Xinjiang province. Uh, about uh, 80% of the population, but now it's reduced down to uh, uh, less than 50%, uh, which is quite interesting. You know, lots of uh, Han Chinese immigrants uh, moved into uh, Xinjiang, uh, uh, well, actually without uh, the government promoting them to do so. But, you know, naturally, they they always like to find a new territory, so-called, and and establish there what they do. Um, And then, uh, because, you know, uh, lots of, um, and and on the other hand, the the the, the differences between uh, the culture, you know, between the cultures between the, the, these two people, are quite quite large. Uh, the, you know, the the gap is huge, and you know, <clears throat> um, uh, as we know, Uyghurs are uh, one of the Turkic uh, 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 people, and they're one of the uh, most original uh, old uh, uh, Turkic. Uh, people. How do the um, given the fact that we have this large minority in Xinjiang mm. um, how do the Chinese authorities, you know, I'm asking an architect here, how do they design a city, how do they plan the urban environment so that um, perhaps cultural respect can be afforded to them or has that just not entered the equation? Well, um, well, since the the the, uh, the People's Republic uh, was founded in 1949, uh, of course, on on the one hand, the the government has been doing a lot of uh, uh, um, developments in Xinjiang. You know, in terms of uh, developing con- uh, cities, uh, 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 developing buildings and, and facilities. High speed as well. These, these high speed as well. Yes. Urban explosions. Exactly. Exactly. And and but you know uh, behind behind all that, it's uh, that. It's I would say it's the Han Chinese mentality, you know, and right. and and so 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 uh, f- through that uh, that edu- you know uh, uh, you know edu- local education, ethnical education, culture, traditions are being uh, more or less uh, uh, affected, you know, by by that, and then more and more Han Chinese are moving in, and um, um, and 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 also in terms of the, the developing cities, because uh, originally in Xinjiang province, uh, there most of the cities are quite oh you know they they've been there and like that uh, since you know fourteen fifteen centuries and and um, so the urban context and architecture were absolutely splendid and uh, you know it, it, you see a lot of heritage. In there, but do you? I mean, do you see a lot of heritage, or do you have very old cities with very, very new buildings which seem to um, forget what what lay before them? Mm -hmm. Well, um, uh, one of the examples is uh, the capital Urumqi. Uh, Before it was the capital of Uyghurs uh, uh, region, but now it's, I would say, mostly Han. Uh, uh, city and and quite quite modern. On the other hand, uh, let me take an, uh, another example: uh, Kashgar or Kashi, the w- the westernmost uh, city in 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 China, uh, which is a a, a, a purely Uyghur city. And and uh, the the city context is 
medieval, and architecturally,、uh, most、uh, most buildings were、um, you know、uh, you know more than two or three hundred years old, and、uh, let alone the、uh, architectural style and traditions. But、um, so when I was there uh, uh, about fifteen, sixteen years ago,、uh, the city was like that, and、uh, you see full of、uh, local culture, ethical culture, and traditions and history, but. Uh, since ten years ago, the、uh, Chinese government built a railway、uh, all the way from the inner China to to Kashgar, and and things started to to change. And、uh, about five or six years ago,、uh, the government decided to、uh, renovate or redevelop most of a, most part of this、uh, city center, which is which was、uh, historical, you know, beautifully. Uh, you know, beautiful historical. And when、center. they mean renovate, they mean renovate not necessarily sympathetically. Well, basically, they、uh, the reason they said was、uh, health and safety. So they、uh, re- they basically knocked down most of the historical buildings and and develop built you know built new buildings and and basically wipe out the the context of the city. What a sad note to end on, Charles Fu. Thank you very much indeed for coming onto the show. Thank you. Vanuit London. Dit is Monaco 24. This is 24. It's just coming up to 2056 here in London. We're approaching the end of the program, so it's time to squeeze in our daily monologue. I don't know how I feel about this.、Uh, I'm turning to、uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, who'll be reflecting on the South American leaders of the fairer sex. The first round of the Chilean presidential elections will happen two weeks from now, and we can be sure of one thing: the president will be female. This is a remarkable achievement for a continent known for its macho attitudes. Not anymore. Brazil, Argentina, and Costa Rica already have female leaders, and Chile is about to join the club. The most likely new addition will be the centre-left's Michelle Bachelet, who left office in 2006 with record popularity. They don't allow re-elections in Chile, and there are other important female figures in the dispute. Including student leader Camila Vallejo, who is most likely to be elected MP for the Chilean Communist Youth Party. It must be said, all of these female South American leaders are leading largely progressive governments. In Brazil and Argentina, for example, gay marriage was approved during Cristina Kirchner and Dilma Rousseff's terms. It seems Latin American voters prefer to be governed by women. The continent is no stranger to this. The world's very first female president came from Argentina. I wouldn't say Isabel Peron was a success, or even in charge of a good government, but it still counts as some sort of landmark for the continent. Of course, there's still a lot to change. The number of female politicians in these countries is still risible, for example, but a formidable standard is set by those at top. In fact, it seems the trend is continuing. Dilma is still the favorite to win next year's election in Brazil, and according to the polls, the only person who could threaten her is the environmentalist Marina Silva. Who most likely will not run for president, but will still be a very influential figure in the dispute. I recently interviewed Magda Chambriard, director of the Brazilian Oil Agency, 
and asked how she felt to have female president, a female chief of staff, and a woman at the helm of Brazil's largest company, Petrobras. Her answer, this is just the beginning. Oh yes, indeed. While there's been much discussion in the press over the years concerning what the role of a first lady is, Latin America should start thinking hard about the role of the many first husbands to come. From Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And a reminder of our lead story, the leader of the Pakistani Taliban, Hakimullah Masood, has been killed in a drone strike in Pakistan. That's all we have time for for today's Globalist Asia. My thanks to our producer, Alid John, and our researcher, Isabel Kayser, and our studio manager, Chris Chilvers. After the headlines, Tom Edwards will bring you an hour of music and highlights on the Atlantic shift. Then in an hour, that's at 2200 hours London time. I'll be back with Romas Fiesolas for the Monocle Daily. We'll get the latest on the shooting at LAX and we'll look ahead to John Kerry's trip to Saudi Arabia this weekend. The Globalist We'll be back at 6am London time on Monday. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, it's goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. Why this watch? This watch is a witness. A witness to words that moved nations. It's dead men faster, further. It's been worn by luminaries, visionaries, champions. It doesn't just tell time. It tells history. Rolex. Rolex. 